Welcome to the 39th episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer Katie here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with your host Brian Birnbaum and today's guest, Atia Bawi. I'm your host, Brian Birnbaum, and we're live at the Fall for the Book Festival here in Virginia on George Mason University's campus. For more information about the Fall for the Book Festival, please visit fallforthebook.org. Today's episode is special because it features Atia Abawi, who will read from her novel, A Place of Permanent Goodbyes. And I'll a do a land of permanent goodbyes. A, a land, I'm sorry, a land of permanent, a land of permanent goodbyes. Yeah. I should have looked at the title when I was uh, <laughs> when I was doing this, and I, and I read the entire book, and I, you know, it's all good. Yeah, a land of permanent goodbyes is a tragic yet uplifting story that follows the survivors of the Syrian civil war, their experience as refugees to Turkey, Greece, and eventually Germany, and all that lies along that treacherous journey. So I'll also be reading from my novel, and so from there we're going to embark on a discussion surrounding the redefining and reframing of trauma. And there's pretty stark contrast between our two books, so I'm. I'm going to go first because I think we're going to really make this more about your book, but, you know, we can maybe inflect the discussion with a little bit of what I read. So I'm going to read from my, my new book, Emerald City, which is set in Seattle from the perspective of one of my main characters, Julia, whose father is an addict and was sober for 20 years. And then some financial things came and family things came up and he relapsed. And so that's what they're dealing with at this point. Julia and her mother returned from the Bay Heights blood drive to find the kitchen's bay window broken at the stays. Julia hoped his homecoming, though unconventional, proved he was still in there, somewhere, perfectly preserved within a crystalgenic freeze. However, helping her mother pick through the pilfer, the wreck left in wake of his recent presence struck her as the stains of a bad dream, a leftover residue that only made it realer. No, San Francisco wasn't what it was back in the 80s. But back in the 80s, he'd been using in New York, and he'd left it back there. After following him to 433 Lombard and eavesdropping on his commitment speech at AA, Julia had prodded her father for details. At first reticent, over time he dropped little snippets casually and only in context. But he never allowed access to primary resources, the Polaroids of him at upstate biker bars, the track marks on his ankles hidden by socks, his black book of sponsors and sponsees, former and current, proving, if anything, that San Francisco carried the day for Meth's tar- target demographic. Since he'd left or gone back, she imagined him skulking the tenderloin, ripping narcotized lushes, diving for newspapers and discarded blankets, and squatting in the height. Alas, like the morsels and crumbs she'd shaken from him, her imagination couldn't recreate the feast of his first-hand experience. But then today, she saw with her own eyes what she'd so lustily sought in his stories. His faint shoe prints leading from the prized window, the pillaged drawers and ransacked closets, the lockboxes busted emptiness. As witness to his ruin, Julia realized that juicy details were just arid derivatives. She'd never touch his darkness. But could she be infected by it? So I'll stop there. Let's move on to you. I want to give a little 
bio of you, and I know this is the same bio that's uh, in the back of your book, <laughs> for those of you who don't know. Atia Abawi is a foreign news correspondent and an award-winning author who lived in the Middle East and Asia for a decade, born a refugee in Germany to Afghan parents who fled, fled a brutal war, Atia was raised in the United States. Her first book for teens was the critically acclaimed and award-winning The Secret Sky, set in contemporary Afghanistan. She currently lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Connor Powell, and her family. And Connor right now is around the corner at a Starbucks <laughs> with the little cute baby. Thanks. But yeah, let's do a reading and then uh, we'll, we'll dive into the conversation. Okay. Sure. I'm going to start. So the book is about a young boy named Tarek who is fleeing Syria after a bomb hits their home, their apartment. And the surviving family members and himself, they have to find their way to Europe. I call it risking your life in order to live a life. This is a little, a little chapter on their trip on the dinghy from Turkey to Greece. Uh, they're on a boat full of other refugees trying to make it across the Aegean Sea. No one move, a woman shrieked. Stop moving, for God's sake. The boat tumbled from side to side, bringing in gallons of water. At any moment, it could capsize. The fragility of the lives on board depended on one strong sneeze or one scared child jumping onto their father's lap. The rhythmic beat of the sea pounding on the slippery rubber tubing serenaded the devil as he waited for the right moment. The salty water in the air fell like daggers on the sunken faces aboard. Right then, it was a familiar horror that kept them warm. Don't everyone sit in the middle, shouted another passenger. Sit on the sides, sit on the sides. Their lungs may not have been taking in water yet, but they were all drowning in fear. We're going to die. The shared thought zipped through the minds of the men and women on board, but no one dared to verbalize it. Is the water coming from a hole or from the waves? Asked the middle-aged woman who had her arms wrapped around her crying toddler. Her other daughter sat in front of them, staring blankly ahead. The waves, a young man responded while trying to smile at the girl and attempt to comfort the terrified child and her mother. Don't worry. This boat is like a balloon. It won't sink. He looked directly at the little girl, raising his eyebrows in assurance. Balloons don't sink. Slow down, a man yelled to the young driver, who carried the burden of knowing that one misstep on his part could kill them all. He imagined 44 bodies floating toward the shores as he gripped the red plastic gas tank with the soles of his feet. He didn't want to be responsible for the deaths of more Syrians. He had enough ghosts terrorizing his dreams. Tarek was mustering up as much courage as he could as he stared at his little sister, who was sitting in front of him with three other children. There was a woman nursing a three-month-old baby next to him. She concentrated on the infant's round cheeks and attentive eyes, attempting to avoid the chaos around her. She began tucking the pink knitted blanket under the baby's soft neck before kissing her forehead. Thoughts of Amir and Samir seeped into Tarek's mind. Not now, Tarek shook his head. He knew he needed to focus. Jamila had not let go of his hand. Her eyes scanned the horizon as her thoughts were lost, thinking of her sister, afraid of losing the only family she had left. I do not see them, she said to Tarek. Where did they go? Do not worry, he tried to reassure her. They are probably near to Greece. His insides fell 
felt an uncontrollable urge to protect her, similar to Susan, but also completely different. A shrill voice cut through the conversations on the boat. Does anyone have a map? We don't need a map. We just need to get there, a man pointed to the land that seemed so much closer when they were on the beach than it did now from the undulating waters. We have to get to the island of Lesvos, she looked at him, annoyed. My cousins are there. Who cares where in Greece we land? As long as it's Europe, you can meet your cousins in Athens. He then turned his attention to his young son, who was stretching his neck and legs to see what was going on. Sit down. I want to see, Baba. The kid looked slightly older than Susan. He's veering too much. Tell him, the map woman told her husband. You tell him, he mumbled back, hugging his blue backpack, paralyzed with fear and unable to look his wife in the eyes. Fine, she replied, agitated, before turning her attention to the skipper. You're veering. Keep it steady. The driver's quivering arms began to wobble. Relax, Habibi. An older man with gray stubble tried to console the man at the helm. You're doing fine. Just take control of your nerves. We trust you. The words tempered his anxiety a bit. Let's sink the boat so the Greek Coast Guard will have to save us, a young man with gelled black curls suggested. No, a chorus of voices yelled back. Do not sink the boat. I can't do this trip again, the young man said in defense of his proposal. This is my third time. Something always goes wrong, and we will always have to go back. Not again. We are barely a kilometer from Turkish shore, the old man pointed to the beach they had just departed. If any Coast Guard will come, it will be the Turks, and they will take us back only to give us deportation papers. And what if no one comes? The woman holding on to her daughter glared at the young man. If the boat sinks, we will all die. She scanned around, now directing her words to everyone. No one sinks the boat. We can't all swim. She kissed her toddler while cursing the young man under her breath. Ahmak. I'm going to stop there just because the chapter goes on and on. And it's just to kind of give you a glimpse of what it's like to be on a boat and uh, what it's like when you think it's a short distance, but it's actually really not. And you have children on the boat, you have chaos on the boat, and really you're only protected by some air inside of a rubber dinghy Mm -hmm. and some rough waters. And unfortunately, that's why we saw tens of thousands of people die on those exact waters. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you at some point about what led you to your specific perspectives, because I know you saw the life jackets Mm -hmm. at, at some point of the book. I think it's Tarek sees the mountain of life jackets mm-hmm. from all of the people that made it across the Aegean. Yeah, what um, we call the life jacket graveyard. The great life yeah. jacket graveyard. And I do want to come back to that to see exactly who you spoke to and like what you saw yourself. The first thing I want to talk about, like in a more global sense about your book, is at the very beginning, you choose to tell the book from the perspective of destiny, which is like a form of omniscient narrator, but you specifically distinguish it from like fate determination or predestination. Mm. Yeah, what went into that choice? Like, is was there something more logical or was it like more of a feeling-based thing or like yeah, where did it come from? Well, it's interesting because I was writing the book originally with Tarek's point of view and it just didn't feel right. Then I started writing it in a third-person narration and that also just didn't click for me. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? And for some reason, destiny came to mind because I started thinking about just humanity in general and how 
Oftentimes we forget that literally everyone in this world has been touched by human migration one way or another, whether it be forced migration, whether it be refugees from war, refugees are leaving because of famine or leaving for a better opportunity. Depending on who you are, sometimes you forget that you had ancestors that had gone through it. Unfortunately, that's what we're seeing a lot right now, especially here in America. So I thought to myself, who knows the story of human history? the way that we can't know ourselves. And for some reason, Destiny popped into my mind and I just started writing it in Destiny's point of view and it worked It worked for me. Did you have to throw out a lot of material to get back to that or were you pretty early on in the process? It was about three chapters. So I wrote those okay. first three chapters in several points of view just to see what felt right for me and that felt right for me. Especially when I read articles, just touching on this a little bit is... When I read articles, especially in our news, about neo-Nazi attacks here in America, and you look at the last names, and it's often Italian or Irish-sounding mm-hmm. last names, and you think, these kids, these people forgot that their ancestors were targeted just a few decades before. I mean, I think of my husband, who has Swedish, Irish, German, Welsh background, and his grandmother, who was a blonde hair, blue-eyed, German woman was targeted by the KKK in Nebraska just several decades ago. And Mm -hmm. luckily, he hasn't forgotten that story. But there are so many people in our society and societies all over the world who have forgotten that that part of their history. And therefore, they target others today, forgetting that, you know, they had loved ones or people connected to them that were once the victims. Yeah, yeah, that that was what I was thinking throughout the book, that it is a story that shows that you know, the common trope in, or common theme in America is that we're all immigrants. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what people say. It really is destiny I saw as we're all human. Mm-hmm. That's it. And you kind of framed it, especially, uh, and I was actually going to ask this later, but I'll just ask it now. You frame it as there are helpers and there are people who hurt, you mm-hmm. know, especially toward the end. Mm-hmm. And I'm really curious about Alexia's character because she is an American college student who basically has taken time off to go help out on uh, on the island mm-hmm. in, in Greece. Did she come from a part of you or someone that you spoke to or some combination of that? Because I know you're, you're a refugee and you came over here very young, correct? Mm-hmm. And so obviously, you know, you know, you know what your parents have been through, but you're also an American. And so you, I feel like you can feel that desire to help. And you did go over there. You did talk to all these people. So where, where did she come from? Or, she, or was she just more a, just, did she just blossom into the narrative as just someone that organically came up? No, that's a great question. So I talk about the helpers and the hunters and, and, and humanity. And I always say that we all have helper and hunter inside of us. And it's what we choose to magnify that defines us. Unfortunately, in situations like this, in situations, in any situation really, we'll find people who are really taking advantage and hurting people who are already struggling. And then when I went to go research the story, and it's a devastating situation, refugees, people dying literally to survive. When I got to Greece to do my research, I stayed with five volunteers from different parts of the world. There was a Chinese volunteer, a Hungarian volunteer, a Welsh, American, British. Sim- um, similar to the 
di- like the differences of volunteers in the book. Exactly. People from exactly. all over the all over the globe. Yeah. And when I witnessed this, it reminded me that yes, it's a devastating situation, and we have a lot of, I guess, quote unquote, bad guys in the situation. When you talk about the war, when you talk about you know people stuck in camps, uh, countries closing off borders, you don't often focus on the helpers. And when I saw that, it reminded me that I needed to focus on these people as well, because these are people who are taking time out of their lives, leaving their families, spending their own money to help people that they don't know. I often bring up the fact that, you know, Syria and Israel, two countries that are still technically at war, you would consider them mortal enemies. But when you go on the beaches of Lesbos, as these rubber dinghies were coming in, there were Israeli doctors helping these families off. You'd watch a hijabi Syrian grandmother kissing a Jewish doctor on the forehead, and it no longer was their governments. It was human beings working together and helping each other. And it's something that we should always remember to keep hope, because sometimes even the people who are the helpers lose hope. I mean, there are times that I sometimes think, oh my God, when is this world going to get better? Is it not going to get better? And then I realize, you know, there are a lot of people working to make that change, mm-hmm. to make sure that we have a better future. And that's that's why I decided to talk about Alexia. And Alexia was based on people that I met there, people that I read about. I think there was a, there was one there was one woman who was actually on vacation in Greece with her father when she saw what was happening and she didn't feel comfortable being on vacation while these people were coming in on boats. So she started, she flew over to Lesbos. She started documenting her life there, helping the refugees. And I thought, this is a great character. So I'm, I kind of blended it all in to make the character of Alexia. Yeah. I, I'm not going to lie. When I was reading this, that my, my first impulse was like, I want to go over there right now because <laughs> it's just terrible. It is. Yeah. It's really terrible. I guess speaking in, in terms of redefining the trauma, was there a choice in terms of how you wrote the book? It's presented for a pretty wide audience. Like, you know, it's, it's framed as like young adult or, you know, in that, but that kind of, would be inclusive of everyone, really, like in, in a sense, maybe below a certain age threshold, maybe not. Was that a pointed decision? And did you do you think that that kind of allows people to look at it in a way, I guess, as as our, our lovely producer, Annie, put it yesterday, to tap into like the child spirit? And he was talking about how when you when you go into therapy, it's often like getting in touch with that core emotion that we're not allowed to show. Mm-hmm in public, especially in like society when we go to work every day. Is there something about framing it in this language, in this voice that allows us to kind of get more direct contact with it? And it's not shrouded in sort of flowery language or writerly flourishes or, you know, not that those things aren't there, but Mm -hmm. it is accessible. Well, when I write, I know it's considered YA, but when I write, I write for everyone Mm -hmm. Um, because I honestly think young readers are in a way more advanced than we give them credit for. They're not just children. In fact, young people, they think and feel as deeply, if not more deeply at times. But I also write for their parents. I want, when I write, I'm hoping that their mother or father or grandparent, 
is going to decide, well, oh, this is an interesting topic. Let me, let me try to pick it up. In fact, I've gotten a lot of responses from parents who bought the book originally for their kids and got to read it themselves. Mm-hmm. When I write, I don't try to, I guess, change the way I write just because it's YA. Because I think that, first of all, teen readers are, in a way, more advanced readers at times. We often think YA is just fantasy, and it's not. And don't get me wrong, fantasy books are amazing Mm -hmm. and more depth to it than, in fact, I look at The Hunger Games, and I'm just blown away by all the research she did on PTSD and all Mm -hmm. that when she wrote the book. But I think that I think that young people definitely want to know more, and their minds right now are more open than when you're an adult. So I feel like they will want to pick this up as well as pick up the book that's, you know, from a faraway land that has nothing to do with their lives. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. And I, I think what Brian was maybe saying that we were kind of talking about yesterday was just that there's so much power in letting a, a youthful narrator talk about those emotions without yeah. the... As we grow up, we kind of develop more savvy ways to talk around our trauma or to talk without talking about it that's more intellectualized. But that youth narrative can actually help us just get directly to the the heart of the emotion and the heart of the traumatic experience as opposed to what we've all kind of coded as a social, socially acceptable way to talk about it. So it's really empowering to have access to that, both the narrator and for the youth who are reading it who are going to have access to that narrator. I think you're right, and I think that's why we're seeing a lot of adults reading YA. I mean, that's I I love YA right now because you're getting so many perspectives that you don't get in quote unquote adult books. You know, there's so much more diversity, so much more about the world that you want to learn about that you can finally read about in books that you don't often see in the adult fiction market. Yeah, and YA is actually becoming a little more open to heavier subjects. Yeah. But do you think that there need to be more global subjects, like such as A Land of Permanent Goodbyes, where we're talking about something that's a widespread issue? You know, this affects us all. I would love that. In fact, I write my books knowing full well that not everyone wants to read more about things that are going to bring them down, about what's going on in actuality, what's going on in our lives. I know that sometimes people... You know, with my first book, The Secret Sky, it goes into the mind of youth and how it's easily, they're easily manipulated into Mm -hmm. fundamentalism, something that we've seen in Afghanistan and all over the world. And we're seeing here, too, with different ways. You know, we're seeing a lot of young people joining joining these right-wing neo-Nazi movements, and it's because their minds are so easily susceptible to manipulation. Mm -hmm. So with The Secret Sky, I wanted to kind of portray that so people can understand why this is considered America's longest war. And with the land of permanent goodbyes, my original career was as a journalist. Mm. So on television, I could possibly at the most give you a two-minute story on what I'm covering. Yeah. If I'm writing a dot-com article, I have 750 words max. And that's not enough time or enough space to give someone what they want. That was going to be my next question yeah. for you. Is, Sorry. Is, did, no, no, I'm, I'm yeah. glad you brought it up because I was going to ask you, basically, did you move from journalism into fiction because you felt like you needed more space to get some of these issues across? And, and, and in this age of kind of just like, you know, hot takes and kind of like how things can get so polarized on TV yeah. and in journalism, like did, did yeah. fiction offer an, av- an avenue for you to just really actually like find nuance? Because speaking to what you just said, th- despite how heavy this is, 
there's a lot of hope in this book. I mean, it's almost like... Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> it's it, it, Yeah, and no, there is. I mean, it's almost like annoying to the point where I'm like, oh my God, but like, you know... It, I, it was it was hard for me to wonder how you could approach this and like know so much about this and say like, well, how you know because if it's talk about redefining trauma, this affects all of us, mm-hmm. all of us. Like mm-hmm. you know, and it's not just physically spilling over into into Europe, but like you know now it's like the whole immigrant thing is a polarizing issue. Mm-hmm. So it's hard not to look at the West in general and say, okay, well look at these problems that we have compared to these problems over here. And you do a good job of not making that, making that comparison antagonistic, you know, but that was a lot of questions at once. Let's go back to the journalism yeah. okay. to into fiction thing. <laughs> yeah. Journalism can be very limiting as a journalist. You know, you meet all these people and you see all these things and you learn all their stories. And, and I can't tell you just how desperate people are for people to know what's going on in their lives, for people to understand them mm-hmm. uh, and not to see them as the superficial picture that we always see. Oh, Afghanistan, war, Iraq, war, Syrians, war. So as a fiction writer, I saw this as a fantastic opportunity, especially when I was first given the opportunity with my first book, The Secret Sky, and now with The Land of Permanent Goodbyes. The issue I had when I first got the opportunity was I didn't have an imagination anymore. As a journalist, like my imagination, especially covering war after war, just kind of went away. Mm-hmm. And that's a good thing as a journalist. But when I got the opportunity to write, I really wanted to write this the first novel and then this novel. And then I thought, okay, well, what can I do if I don't have an imagination? How am I supposed to write a fiction novel? Mm-hmm. Then I thought about it. I'm like, well, why can't I just write the truth? You know, This is why it's realistic fiction. Why can't I just compile all the stories of the people that I met and talked to, uh, the things that I've seen into the novel. So I always tell people, what you're going to get from me is reality. You're going to get the colors of the mountains that I saw in Afghanistan. You're going to get the sound of the Aegean Sea that I heard when I went to do my research. You're going to get the voices of the people that I talked to. Um, This is why I take it really seriously, mainly because I feel really responsible to the subjects that I'm writing about. Mm I don't want to tell you a story about them that's not their real story and that for them to come back and say that's not what my life is like. And I feel a responsibility to the readers because the pers- the people who want to pick up my book, they want to know more about what's going on, mm-hmm. about the situations that I'm writing about. Oh, the first thing I did after I read it was I was like, okay, I'm gonna, I mean, because I obviously knew the, the basics, but yeah, it was like a deep dive like into like, okay, what's really going on underneath here? Yeah. And I, and I feel really responsible to you, the reader, and to the people that I interviewed. Mm-hmm. So... This is why when I got the okay to write about the refugees, I booked a ticket to Turkey. I booked a ticket to Greece. My only issue was is that I couldn't get into Syria. Mm. Uh, so luckily, we live right now in a world full of technology that I was able to easily contact Syrians through social media, through WhatsApp. And I worked directly with a doctor, a Syrian doctor who was from Raqqa. So, because I have a few chapters in my book based just in Raqqa, and that's a place that even journalists can't get into right Uh now, uh, or back then either. So, I worked hand in hand with him. I wrote my chapters. He would go through it, tell me what I had right, what I had wrong. Then I'd rewrite it, have him look through it again. And he was just as committed as I was to make sure the truth came out because he was excited for this to become a book so others could know what was going on. Uh 
so yeah, that's that's basically how I approach my writing. Yeah, go ahead. Amy. Well, I just think it's so interesting to talk about the the difference between journalism and fiction because I've taken journalism classes where you know you want to strip all the emotion mm -hmm. out of mm -hmm. the facts that you're seeing. To me, that kind of feels like a way to create trauma is to try and you know distill everything down to just facts and not allow yourself to feel the things yeah. that you're feeling. So, I mean, does that did that factor into how you were writing that you part of the truth? As writers, we know emotions are very much part of the truth, and the emotional feeling of being in a place is so much part of the experience that our hard and fast journalism that we see every day does not allow for that. Like, are we, are we all becoming more traumatized by the way that the news leaves those stories out and leaves those facts out? That's a great question, because with my first book, I was in Afghanistan and four and a half years in Afghanistan. And then when I was finishing up the book, I was in Jerusalem. I had just moved there. And for me, I did suffer from PTSD that I didn't even realize I did until after I got better because my husband then pointed out, yeah, you used to wake up crying and you don't do that anymore. You used to wake up screaming. You don't do that anymore. But when I wrote my first book, it was a way of just getting it all into the book, it's the stories that I couldn't share. So you touched on that perfectly. And then when it came to Atlanta Permanent Goodbyes, I was also in, in, living in Jerusalem. I was actually researching another topic for a book. My editors wanted me to write about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and kind of put a different kind of angle in writing about that. As I was doing my research for that, the refugee crisis was on our television screens. And my son was, I guess, the same age as my daughter is now, about eight months old. And I'm holding him in my safe, warm apartment watching these mothers pushing strollers on the sides of busy European highways, families putting their children on boats, risking their lives, you know, for a life. And I kept thinking of my own parents. And my mother was eight months pregnant with me, and my brother was two when they escaped the first war in Afghanistan of the recent wars. And that was nearly 40 years ago. The Soviet war, The right? Soviet yeah, war, yeah. exactly. And I just kept thinking about the decision that they made led me to where I am and holding my baby safely in an apartment as I'm watching these other poor families making that same decision that my parents made. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I thought, I went to my editor, I was like, I have to write this. I can't, I can't focus on anything else right now. So when you talk about dealing with trauma, in a way you're right. For me, I also thought about the fact that I'm so lucky that I could write this in book format as my friends who were still journalists at the time who were covering it as journalists were given a minute or two on television and again, 750 words for an article. And I was lucky enough to be able to get, dive in a little deeper. That said, it really does affect you. I mean, I, there wasn't a day that I didn't write my book that I didn't cry. Mm -hmm. I mean, some days I had to just close my computer and just say not today because I had a kid to take care of. And then the next day I'm take a deep breath, open up my computer and start again. Mm. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because you're coming from this journalistic perspective and you wanted it to be so real. Mm. And I'm not sure if you took, if your characters are representations of real people or composites that, that you met. Composites. They're composites. Yeah. So there's still this element of imagination and yet it is very real. And something that strikes me as very important about fiction in general, but especially for your book, is that, like you say in your book, these crises or these wars or what have you, they're often viewed through the prism of the governments. Mm -hmm. And like we judge people 
that live in these countries through the prism of these governments and mm-hmm. these or or ISIS, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it, you know, these organizations, but you people you, in power, people in power yeah. that are controlling other people. But these you represent these humans in ways you imagine them as humans that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, we're all the same. The, these people are just fleeing from a place just as all of us would. And so that's where I think the imaginative power is so important. And I'm wondering if there was like an element more than just wanting to say, this is really what's going on. Like I wanted to be realism. Like Annie, going back to what Annie said, it's like the emotions, you've experienced some of them, but you had to imagine what you were like, what it would be like. And it's hard for a lot of people that don't maybe get on board with some of these issues that are very important. I guess that's the the nice way to put it. <laughs> or don't yeah. think they're as important. I'm not sure if like when you were writing this book, was there any desire to maybe not change minds, but get people to open up their own imaginations, even though you were trying to represent something that was real, you know? Yeah. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. A, a couple things. So again with the when you talk and you interview these people who've gone through such traumatic events and they're willing to talk to you, they tell you everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they open up their hearts, they open up their lives, and they don't hide it. Oftentimes, what they, especially with the Syrians, they would say, just don't put my name into it. Mm-hmm. So if you look at my acknowledgments, there is probably, I think, just two Syrians that I could thank because they were like, yes, you can use my name because everyone else was afraid for their families mm-hmm. back home. Yeah. And the second that you give them the okay, don't worry, no one's going to know it's you. They tell you everything. Wow. So sometimes I don't have to imagine the emotions. But sometimes, you know, there are ways of putting in the interviews as thoughts and and compiling it. When I do composites of characters, you're right, into blending it into this fiction that we see. The second part of your question was? Well, basically, yeah, because I do think there are people who view... Oh, that's right. Sorry. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's if not, I'm trying to change their minds. Yeah. And I can crystallize it as like, you know, they view it as, no, this these people are trying to get into our country and they all yeah. represent a bad thing. Yeah. yeah. No, but sorry. it's so it's so black and white, you know. And I would be lying if I said, no, this isn't to change people's minds. <laughs> um, and it's not necessarily to change their minds as much as it is for them to open their eyes. Uh-huh. Um, and I was really lucky that Atlanta Permanent Goodbyes was recommended by both NPR and Fox News, which was for me like, whoa. Um, yeah, yeah. But Dana Perino read my book. She put it originally on Instagram and, and then she had it on her show, one of her shows, The Five, and recommended it again. And... A bunch of people just on Dana Perino's recommendation, thankfully, picked up the book. I'm and more worried about you than, than, than <laughs> them in this case. <laughs> well, what was amazing about it is I received messages from Fox News viewers who picked up the book because mm-hmm. of her recommendation and said that I read your book and it changed my perspective on you know, the refugee situation. That's awesome. And I, and that was amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure some of the people may have picked it up and said, oh, you know, this is, well, I'm not going to read this. Yeah. But there were a handful of people that responded and then reached out to me. And I felt really, I felt really good about that. Yeah. And I go back to, I go back to the saying that, you know, I, I tell people this, that, you know, fear it's human nature to be afraid of things that you don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it's 
absolutely human nature. That's that's what it is. Sure. The thing is, is when we try to understand, the, if we try to, like, if we're afraid of re- refugees and we go out and speak to someone and find out that they're a refugee and find out about their lives or pick up a book or try to read something that isn't propaganda against them, we learn more. That's understanding. And that understanding often turns into empathy. So you go from fear to empathy mm-hmm. to wanting to help mm-hmm. in some way and somehow. And that doesn't mean, you know, flying to Greece. It could just mean smiling at someone or stopping someone who's hateful from saying something hateful. Those little trickles make a huge effect in our world, I believe. Yeah. But if people who are afraid don't try to find some way to find understanding, that fear often turns to hate. Yep. And that's what we're seeing right now all over the world, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, So I hope if my book, you know, if only a handful of people read it and a few of those people out of that handful can have a mindset changed, which has already happened, I'm I'm happy that I wrote it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, and... Not to be too partisan about it, but I wish you would write one about the uh, southern border now, <laughs> 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 because yeah. it's the you know it's 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 a it's a mirror image of what's going on over there. Uh, different you- different circumstances, different people, but people fleeing from something that's outside of their control. All human beings, you know? all doing the right thing, all trying to save their families and not breaking the law. I mean, this is the misconception that I see oftentimes for those people, again, the people who are fearful, who become hateful, Mm -hmm. is they don't try to understand the situation. These people are coming to the border, they're seeking asylum. That's Mm -hmm. literally following following the law. And again, I hope that if someone can read this about the Syrians, they can try to associate this with what we're seeing on the border in America Mm -hmm. and just realize Mm -hmm. this is humanity. These are human beings. And if it's if it's them today, you never know if it's going to be us tomorrow. Yeah. My parents never thought that their lives would be turned upside down. I mean, they had amazing lives in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I mean, unfortunately, most people only know Afghanistan now as this country of war. Mm-hmm. But when my parents were living there, it, Kabul was cosmopolitan. You know, mm-hmm. They had a beautiful Russian opera house. You know, they, My dad went to the German school. I had an uncle who went to the French school. It was just – it was a cosmopolitan city. And then one day it changed. Sounds like a little Beirut, you know? Yeah. yeah. Syria. I mean, okay, our governments may not have gotten along. So we have always assumed Syria was this third world country, but it was not. You mm-hmm. know, it was an amazing country. Yes, it had its issues. We have our issues. Every country has its issues. But Syria had, you know, they had universe, people going to universities, doctors, lawyers. It was a beautiful country. Mm-hmm. And adding to that, you know, we look at, refugees going to Europe, and we look at America only accepting about 18,000 Syrians since the start of the Civil War, which is our loss, honestly, because Mm -hmm. this society has such great minds that could really influence our society in a positive way. And we have the opportunity, being so far away, to cherry pick the best of the best the best engineers, the best doctors. You know, we could bring them here to help us in the ways that we need help, but we haven't done that, and we're mm-hmm. not doing that. And that's really unfortunate for us. Yeah. And them. Yeah. I was wondering if we had any questions from from you guys out there. Okay. So how how do you balance staying engaged but protect engaged with the issue with the issue, with the issue but protecting yourself from what's going on? Yeah. Yeah. 
That's a really good question, and it's it, it's a difficult it's a difficult question, and it's a difficult thing to do. To be honest, I often talk about how empathy can be really painful, like trying to help or trying to get involved can really like blood, sweat, and tears. It could be so draining. But by doing that, it's also such a powerful thing, because if you don't have that anymore, I feel like. I feel like something starts to die inside of you as well. That said, there are days that you just need a break. You know, that's why when I said sometimes I would have to just close my computer. And you're talking about, you know, being a person of color and having to fight that fight. You're literally fighting that fight every day. And that is absolutely draining. And I think we're also living in a time now that, you know, it helps when someone else is trying to help, help with that fight for you. You know, I sometimes, I'm now, luckily, as devastating as certain situations are today, especially when we look at the American political landscape, it's been helpful to see friends who I never knew as people who just speak up. You know, they lived their comfortable, privileged lives, now suddenly speaking up. And I go out and I thank them because I often say, you know, you saying this now has a tremendously bigger effect than, you know, See, if I defended uh, like Muslims or if you defended, you know, people of color, when you see it from someone coming of privilege, like their voice in a way seems to resonate more with those that need to hear it. And it's good to see more and more people doing that. And, you know, hopefully the more and more they can do it, the more and more you can take a break every now and then. But unfortunately, I mean, the fact of the matter is, is it's this fight that it's going to be for the rest of your life, rest of our lives. It's just, it's just right now, it's more intense than ever, I feel. I got a whole lot more grays. I've always said, too, that running from bullets and bombs as a journalist was much more easier than writing a book. There's just something more stressful about this because you know it's going to be permanently there. My God, I think you just justified my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if that's true, but <laughs> I guess you've been through it. Um, <laughs> does anyone else have a question? Yeah. So the question is that because the book is told from the vantage point of destiny, is destiny a force that can change the fate or what happens to the characters? Correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question, actually, because... Uh, Destiny can oftentimes be, you know, misconceived as fate. So I specifically chose destiny because I want the characters to control destiny. And destiny, destiny. Can I actually read the first? Part? Yeah, I would. I would like that. And and uh, yeah. I'll just add that I looked up like every one of the words you used. Just I was like, okay, yeah, I get it. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I like that. This leads to this, and it's a short one it's because destiny wants the wants everyone to know that she does not control you you control her you were born to die and that i have no say but when that happens is not up to me it's up to humanity and all too often the lack of it the human heart is the most complicated creation i've ever encountered the formation of the cosmos was easier to understand yours is a group that is easy to read yet difficult to comprehend you chiseled a wheel and transformed it from stone to wood to rubber you have turned mountains into threads that control machines, computers, and phones. You've even learned to fly without having your own wings. All of this happened within a blink of the universe's eye. Your greatest achievements came from your brain. Your heart is a whole different system. 
an intensely more complicated one. It's a place that can hold an incredible amount of love or an incredible amount of hate, sometimes both at the same time. And although there has been ample growth in the capability of your minds, not a lot has changed in the nature of your species. A mother's affection thousands of years ago holds the same warmth it does today, covering her child with a blanket sewn of her soul even long after she is gone. A gentle kiss still sends shivers through the bodies of young lovers, and the memory of that embrace lives on as their bones wither and hair fades to gray. Decades later, you still feel the cold emptiness of losing someone you held dear. But it is the growing divide between the mind and the heart that I find so dangerous for your kind. Your new innovations don't help you to feel love as often as they contribute to spreading hate. Your chest is a vault for your jealousy, prejudices, and regrets, emotions that you once released through sharp tongues and bare hands until your tongues and hands were replaced with swords and poisons, and now bullets and bombs. The streams of blood turned to rivers and then to oceans. I am the one often blamed for your actions. Philosophers describe me as the predetermined course of events. I am sometimes confused with fate or predestination. I consider myself simply the end of a sequence of events that you and your kind actively shape. I don't like to be held liable for the evils in the world, but often I am, through no error of my own. My work is to finalize the deeds of those who have paved their way toward me. I meet you at the end of the paths you walk on, sometimes when I truly don't expect to. I'm not the reason why hearts can be so dark. I can't even take credit for the ones who do good. I'm just the end result of your choices. We will always meet time and again. Sometimes you realize I am there, other times you ignore me. It's okay. I'm used to it. But even when you stop believing in me or you stop despising me, I will never abandon you. I see most of you as old friends. I enjoy when we encounter each other on happy occasions. I weep when the moments are harsh. One thing I ask, please stop condemning me or giving me credit for how, when, and where we meet. This is not up to me. It has never been up to me. I just show up when it's time, and that moment will always arrive. So yes, you were born to die, but in between, you are meant to live. If we run into each other prematurely, it's not because of my negligence, and often not because of yours. Your world controls me. I do not control you. I am destiny. So that was a good segue into that reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks. Go ahead. So the question is basically, did, did the four and, and a half years in Afghanistan prepare her for her time in Greece? Yeah, like a war zone versus a refugee crisis. Okay, yeah, as, as, as compared from a war zone to a, a refugee crisis with, uh, with regards to Afghanistan and Greece, respectively, yeah. Great question. Emotionally, yes. Because I say this, when I first arrived in Afghanistan, in the beginning of my four and a half years there, there was about a four-week period where I fell into a deep depression, mainly because I'm driving around a city that I heard about, and it was beautiful, like the stories that I was told. And here I'm seeing these people suffering. I'm seeing the city that was torn apart. Um, you're seeing children on the street, you know, just victims day after day after day. And I just slumped into this depression thinking, this is, this is horrible, this is sad. And then one day, I literally just slapped myself out of it. And I thought to myself, I'm being so selfish. I am so selfish right now that I am depressed over something that I can get out of and that they can't. 
then I thought to myself, well, I have such an opportunity right now as a journalist for CNN at the time and then NBC News later to be able to do more for them. And that meant talking to them to try to get their voice out there because people who are suffering, they're not looking for handouts. They're looking for understanding. They want people to understand what they're going through. And I had such an honor to be able to be that person for them, even if it be on a minute level as a journalist. And then I felt the same way going to the camps in Greece, meeting the refugees in Turkey. Yes, my stomach sunk, my heart sunk. But at the same time, I kept thinking about what an honor it is to meet these people who are willing to talk to me and give me a way to try to tell their story, even if it's just a little drop in the ocean. Does that answer your question? Thanks. Okay. Yeah, we're getting the sign. And thank you, everyone, for uh, participating. And thank you, Atia, for, for joining us. Thank you. And thank you to Fall for the book. Um, yeah. I'm just so excited to be here. <laughs> it's very cool to have this conversation. Thank you. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Animal Riot Press or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the 39th episode of the Animal Riot podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Atia Bowie. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay. This episode was cut by our podcast assistant, Dylan Thomas. And this episode was also guest produced by the one and only Annie Krabenschmidt. See you later, you filthy animals. Getting gully as the fern. I don't know much about.